Welcome back to the Surfacing Leaders Podcast, where you can come along with nuclear submarine officer, sought-after turnaround CEO and founder of Lead with Purpose, Mark Kohler, as he tells the stories of leaders in unlikely places and the human spirit that drives us all to show us that anyone can learn to be a leader. And now, here's Mark Kohler. Dr. Marcus Collins is an award-winning marketer and cultural translator. He's the former head of strategy at Whedon and Kennedy, a marketing professor at the Ross School of Business at the University of Michigan, and the author of the best-selling book, For the Culture, The Power Behind What We Buy, What We Do, and Who We Want to Be. Marcus is an inductee into the American Advertising Federation's Advertising Hall of Achievement and a recipient of the Thinkers 50 Radar Distinguished Achievement Award. Marcus, welcome to the Surfacing Leaders Podcast. Thanks so much. I'm excited to be here. Let's start off and let, let's just get a little background on you, like where you're from, and then and then you know take us to where you are today. Yeah, I'm from Detroit, born and raised, and I like to start that way because I feel like I'm a product of the city. All the things that sort of make up Detroit, I feel like make up who who I am in all the many beautiful and in some ways not so compelling ways about the city. I think is a reflection of, of, of me. Uh, so I grew up in Detroit in a very middle-class home, did well in math and science. And as anyone from Detroit in the 90s, especially if you're black, you do well in math and science, you go into engineering. So that's what I did. I studied engineering in undergrad. I was really excited about polymers because I thought that polymer chains were really interesting. You know, here are these, you know, the, these, the, the, these atoms that will connect to other atoms and chain onto other connected atoms to create something unique. And I thought that was really, really powerful. And while I thought it was interesting, I wasn't necessarily interested once I actually started taking classes in, in, in my undergraduate years. And I realized that pretty early on. I remember coming home at the end of freshman year saying, mom, dad, I don't, I don't think I want to be an engineer. My mother, who's an academic, says, well, wait until you get to your major. You'll love it. I go, okay, you know, I trust my mom. So <laughs> I, I got my major second year and I realized I did not love it. Again, interesting, but wasn't necessarily interested. So I took some music theory courses to offset my terrible GPA. <laughs> I, I used to play piano in church and I sang in choirs and played jazz bands and as a kid. So I thought music was something I've always loved. And truthfully, I, I thought I would be a songwriter, but it never felt realistic. So I took a music theory course just to, you know, have a better GPA, <laughs> have, you know, a, a, an A or two, which I didn't have at all at the time. And I fell in love with major sevens. I said, oh, this is the thing right here, this thing that felt so familiar, but yet new. I was like, this is what I want to do. I want to write music. So I came home that summer after my sophomore year and I was spending so much time talking about this moment because it was pretty pivotal in, 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 in my uh, trajectory. And I told my mother, mom and dad, you know, I want to be a songwriter. And they said, no, you don't. <laughs> that is not true. And I go, no, no, no. I, I want to write songs for a living. And they're like, that is not a real thing. And we really fought it out. I mean, we fought the Battle of Jericho that day for sure. And I lost for sure. So I went back to school to finish my, my engineering degree, but spent all my time outside of class focusing on music. So after I graduated, I gave my parents my degree and said, here you go. This is for you. And I went to the music industry writing love songs. And I had a little bit of success and a little bit of traction, nothing great. A couple of remixes placed, which for any you know professional musician, that's, that's awesome. But it wasn't sustainable. So I decided to go back to school to really explore the disruption that was happening in music, which we know is digital today. So what year is this? What this year is this just around? 2007. 2007. Got it. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah. Disruption in music. Oh yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, the yeah. bottom basically dropped out of the music business in 2004, 2005, 2006, not good years for the music business as it once operated. Disruption was on every, every, every corner. So I went to school to figure out this disruption, focusing on marketing. When, I, when during that time, I ended up going to Apple to do partner marketing at it's for iTunes, which was leading the disruption. Great time to be there. End up meeting a guy named uh, Matthew Knowles who has a daughter named Beyonce Knowles. And he says, let me get this straight. You were an engineer. You started a music company. You have your MBA. You worked at iTunes and you're black. 
dude, who are you? Like, you're a unicorn. You don't exist. Right. They go, no, right. I exist. I'm real. He says, right. well, you should run digital strategy for, for Beyonce. And I go, oh, yeah, I should definitely do that. Wow. So I, 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 worked, I worked with for Music World Entertainment, who was the management company and record label for Beyonce. And I ran digital strategy for it. This is in the I Am Sasha Fierce days. So think single ladies, you know, put a ring on it, Halo. This is like, I would say this is Beyonce sort of transcending being a musical artist. Right. To right. be iconic, to representing something beyond just the music, right? Beyonce began to, to signify femininity, womanhood, women's empowerment, a certain right. brand of feminism. And this is where we started seeing Beyonce move from being Beyonce the artist to being Queen B. And I got a chance right. to lay just one brick on that edifice. Not that I'm not going to take any extra credit because she is amazing. And the team that was working with her at the time was just out of this world, off the charts, talented. But I got a chance to contribute to it and have a front row seat mm. as this mm. uh, ascension was happening. And it was fantastic. It was, it was, it was great. You know, that was the year she won all those, those Grammys. It's just, it's unbelievable. But what I started to realize was that the music industry, while I was working at the top of it, working with Beyonce, having been at Apple beforehand, that the music industry was really anemic to understanding the digital space. And the people who were navigating the space well were brands and advertisers. So I figured if I wanted to be good at this, I need to go with where where the you know where the intelligence lied where where the innovation and the creativity was happening so i went into advertising went work for an agency called big fuel pure play social media agency and i learned social this is 2011 now i'm learning the ins and mm. outs of social right? i'm learning like you know not just the platforms but what it means to, right. to create social experiences and during this time i met a gentleman by the name of steve stout who was a once music executive, now advertising executive, who started an agency called Translation with his partners, Jay-Z and Jimmy Iovine. And this agency was about helping brands thrive in contemporary culture. And he gave me an opportunity to come and build the social practice in this agency to lateralize, or lateralize it across all of the clients in the building. And I just go, yeah, definitely sign me up for that. And this was a massive inflection point for me because I got a chance to work with brands where I had no business being in that room, no business touching it. And I had to put ideas in the world that had a really massive and sustainable impact on culture. Right? I, I launched the main American Music Festival for Budweiser, which, you know, with 10 years running, unbelievable. I moved the New Jersey Nets to Brooklyn to become the Brooklyn Nets. I launched the the Cliff Paul campaign for State Farm. Just these unbelievably cultural impactful work I got to do. And and it was phenomenal. It was it was invaluable because you don't get a chance to what is you have to say that you know making it to the championship is always, you know, a, a learning experience. And I got to do that several times and win, which was pretty amazing. And while this was happening, I had what I refer to as my Jerry Maguire moment. My wife and I, then fiance, were out to dinner with one of her, her, her friends from, from college who was a social worker. And at dinner, she kept saying, in social, we do this. In social, we do that. In social, we do this. And I kept thinking to myself, why does she keep saying that? Because that's exactly what I say, working in social media. In social, we do this. Television, you do that. In radio, do this. In social, we do this. And I go, oh my goodness, I get it. She's saying that because social is people. Social work, social justice, social action. It's all about people. And I'd been thinking about social through the lens of the technology, not about the people. And in that moment, I felt simultaneously inspired as well as terrified because I knew nothing about people. I was an engineer. I didn't study any of the humanities. And I felt like a fraud. I was terrified. I was like, I'm going to get fired for sure. And my wife says to me, well, you should. Then Beyonce says to me, then you should. Started reading. So I started reading the behavioral sciences. I started with Ariely, which led me to, to Lowenstein, Dunbar, uh, Heath, Thaler, Watts, Freud, Young, Milgrams, like all of these folks. I'm starting to read 
understand sort of the underlying physics of humanity. And the more I understood it, the more it started to impact my work. And I was like, oh, this is the cheat code right here. If we can understand sort of mm. what makes us tick, then we can leverage it to get people to move because that's the core function of marketing, getting people to adopt behavior. So I started to apply that to the work, which is how we got, you know, the Cliff Paul campaign, Made in America and, and the like. So I thought, okay, I really want to exercise this more, not just in, in the boardroom, but I want to talk about it more. So I started teaching. And as I started teaching, I realized that like the work got better the more I talk about it and engage in it and, and, and sort of explain it. And I figured that's going to be the world I live in, one foot in advertising or one foot in practice and one foot in, in academia. And that's been the case for the last 10 years or so. Now I'm, I'm a full-time professor here at the Ross School of Business, University of Michigan. Most recently, I wrote a book called For the Culture, The Power Behind What We Buy, What We Do, and Who We Want to Be that encapsulates the learnings I've had as a practitioner with what I know of the theoretical underpinning of, of how we navigate the world. And I help brands today leverage this thinking as they put ideas in the world, not only as, as they engage with consumers, but how they, how they engage internally as an organization and ultimately how, how that informs how they show up in, in the world. That was unbelievable. Now, when you think about that journey, was it intentional or were you just always like, hey, I'm just going to take the next step forward? Mm -hmm. And, you know, you were guided by either some, something divine or you were guided by, you know, fate, or you just stumbled through it. What, you know, how'd that all happen? I mean, that's a, that's a fantastic journey. I think it was a little bit of both. I've never, I've never been the person to never, to not know what I wanted to do. I've, since, I, since I was a kid, I wanted to be Michael Jackson, you know, then I wanted to be boys to men, you know, like I, I, I wanted to be a boys to men. Like I, I always knew what I wanted to do. That was never, ever the question. However, what I wanted to do would evolve. And what I realized looking back, and it's always easier to look in the rearview mirror than it is looking forward. But I realized right. looking back was that I've just always been fascinated with putting things in the world and seeing how it brought things together, right? What I loved about polymers, carbon chain, right. was that, right that other carbon chains or, or other carbon molecules that had you know, a certain affinity for electrons will come together and create new things, right? The plastics that we use. What I, what I loved about music is putting music in the world, people who shared the same feeling, people who shared the same experience as you to a song, to a rhythm, to a performance, et cetera, you feel connected. And the same thing goes when it comes to brands, that you know, people who share the same point of view as a brand, use the brand as a way to express their identity and they connect people who are like themselves. The same thing with organizations, the same thing with institutions, the same thing with politicians. And regardless of the context, it's really all about bringing people together. So I feel like now that I know that my path forward is much clearer, but throughout that journey, I knew in that moment, I want to do this now. I knew how it manifested, not why I wanted to do it. That makes sense. Like I knew what I wanted to do. I wanted to be in advertising. Great. Why I was driven to advertising, I didn't understand the underlying physics of that, the underpinnings of that. But I knew that's what I wanted to do. And then I just said, okay, how do I do that? How do I take that step forward? And I sort of let you know serendipity guide the way. But I was very curious and I would always take a step forward. And I, since I didn't know very much about these new industries, I operated under what, what C.K. Prahalad would call challenging the dominant logic because I didn't know much about the advertising industry. I didn't know that most advertisers start at the bottom and then work their way up. Since I you know, didn't come from academia, I didn't know that, hey, you, know, you have to go get a PhD first and then you go get published and then and then and then you secure the, the full-time thing. For me, I started teaching first because I was excited about teaching. And then it was along the journey that I decided to go get a doctorate and then, you know, publish. You know, so I feel like I've always operated outside the dominant logic and that's been helpful for me. Yeah, it's interesting. It's just the power of curiosity of taking that next step and trusting in that next step and then evaluating it and, and continuing uh, to really move on. Let's talk about 
the background that you have. I mean, you have this background and expertise that has this, you know, intersection of branding and culture and and really consumer behavior. And your your book for the culture, you know, it says inspire what we buy, what we do, and who we want to be. Tell us more about that. Yeah. Well, there is no external force more influential to human behavior than culture, full stop. Just none. And when people hear that, they go, yeah, that makes a ton of sense. Sure, totally. But if you ask five people to define culture, you get 55 different answers, and that's a problem, right? We don't have a really great Rosetta Stone for describing culture, right? And, 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 and I get it. Like, you know, culture is, it's, 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 it's ambiguous. It's abstract. It's omnipresent. It's uh, esoteric in, in many ways, which makes it hard for us to define. So I think about culture through the lens of, of the, the founding fathers of sociology, Durkheim, Weber, and Marx. And they talk about culture, particularly Emil Durkheim, who talks about culture as a system of conventions and expectations that demarcate who we are and govern what people like us do. It's a system, right? And what makes up that, that system? Well, it starts with our identity, who we are, and all the many monikers that we use to self-identify, right? The alchemy of these multiple hyphens that make up the complexity of our intersectionality, our identity. And because of who we are, we see the world a certain way. That's why for some, a cow is leather, for others, it's a deity, and for some, it's dinner. But which one is it? It's all those things, depending on how you self-identify. And because of how I self-identify, I see the world a certain way. And because I see the world a certain way, I navigate the world a certain way. I adorn certain artifacts, I, I, I ad adopt certain behaviors, and I speak a certain way, my language, right? The lexicon, uh, vernacular, colloquialisms, jargon, and the like. And because of how I see the world, I not only navigate the world a certain way, but the beliefs and ideologies of people like me are socialized through shared work. This is literature, film, music, movies, television, podcasts, poems, and brands and branded products become ways by which we signal to the world who we are based on our, our cultural subscription. The alchemy of these systems or systems of systems make up our culture. And because of this very thing, we buy what we buy, wear what we wear, dress the way we dress, uh, style our hair if we have it, the way we style our hair, where we go to school, who we marry, if we marry, where we bury the dead, if we bury the dead. These things are all byproducts of our cultural subscription. So much so that I would say that consumption at its core is a cultural act. Like we buy these things, not because of what they are, but because of who we are. It informs where we go to work. It informs, you know, if we go to school, all these things that are part of our daily living are all byproducts of our cultural subscription, which means if we understand the culture which people subscribe, we probably have a really good chance at engaging them and ultimately influencing their behavior one way or another. Yeah, culture is really everything today. And you're right, it's this squishy thing. Sometimes you can't define it, you know, but you know, the best things in life are the are the things you don't see, it's the things you feel. That's right. Like love. How do you define love? You know, it's 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 hard to define. And because it's hard to define, it's actually hard to operationalize. You know, right. The way one needs love is different than the way somebody else needs love. And and though the manifestations are different, the core of it is still the same. And the more we understand the core with some level, some modica of, of, of concreteness, the more likely we are to, to leverage it, to operationalize it, to impact it. That's great. Over your career, we know that culture is really important right now. I mean, it's absolute. And, and it should have always been absolute at the, at the top of, of everyone's list of, hey, if we get this right, everything else yes. will follow, right? But, but early on, when the speed of business was slower and people could just say, hey, I'm going to operate um, from a top-down hierarchy and push decision-making down, and I'm giving people a job, luckily they have a job and they get paid, and, and that's all flipped now. Yeah. So how have you seen it, as we talk about culture today, and we talk about culture when you first started, how have you seen it change from, from when you started to today? Yeah, well... The Jack Welch style of management doesn't work anymore. You know, this idea of, of to your point, like, I'm just going to dictate 
and then push down. And people are just going to do. And if you don't do, we'll, we'll, you won't work here anymore. And that is by its, by its very nature, a transactional based relationship that you're here to give me your time, your attention, your talent, and I give you money. And I think that when the work was functional, industrialized in nature, that worked out fine, right? I, you know, I'm, I'm going to go to the factory and I'm going to make, you know, the, I'm going to make the quarter panel for a car. Right? And I was going to make the quarter panel and mindlessly do this thing. I'm going to turn off my brain, just do this thing. And then once I'm done, pff, done. And though, and I was looking at a very, very skilled manual labor. And as work became much more cognitive and we move from a product good based economy to a service based economy, we asked more of workers. Like I want your, your, your interests, your passions. I want like. You know, beyond the, like, I want you staying here over, you know, over the time, a lot of it, not nine to five, but more, I want you to be available more than this. I want more from you. And the idea was that like, the more people poured into a place, the more you would get out of them. So you were asking for a more emotional based relationship with consumer or with, with your workers than a transactional based relationship. And as a result, then you had to, to, you had to position work as not just a place where you go, but a part of who you are, your identity, right? And this idea of that, you know, I work at Google, I work at whatever, became a way by which you signaled who you were and where you sit in the social hierarchy. And therefore, organizations had to be a part of your life or had to bring more to your life than just transaction. So then, then that, bears, that bears in mind then, okay, what is the culture of the organization and do I fit into the culture of the organization? So as we demand more from people, people, of course, demand more of us, more from the institution, more from the company, because there has to be some level of reciprocity. And what we're finding is that in doing so, it becomes really complicated, right? Marketplace dynamics and social dynamics, they don't go very well together. That's why prostitution is such an, an awkward profession because it's the mixing of social and, 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 and marketplace behavior and what governs social behavior, culture. It is the operating system of, of humanity. So if companies want to transcend out of transaction into more of your identity and of your life, then they have to abide by the rules of culture. You know, one of the things that we talk about is culture needs to be in a person's heart. And so regardless of where they're working from, it, it's, it's where they're at, whether they're at the office, whether they're, you know, working from Starbucks uh, mm. or whether they're working from home. Yep. When, when you think about what leaders have to do today, what are some, what are some top things that you've seen great leaders do that our listeners could learn from that are helping to not only build, because one of the things we also believe is you have to earn your employees right every single day. Oh yeah. It's not just, it's not just, you know, Hey, I'm going to do it. And then maybe a year later I'll, I'll do it again. Yeah. <laughs> what are the things you're seeing the top leaders do so they can continue to strengthen and fortify their culture? Well, what does it mean to lead? Leadership, one construct that I really enjoy is that leadership is influence without authority. Influence people without authority. So the question becomes then, so how do good leaders influence people? Well, the first is that instead of demand, you inspire. You know, instead of like cracking a hammer or cracking the whip on someone or dropping the hammer, instead you inspire them, you know, to be the best version of themselves. And in, in, and this is really where I started to think about myself as, as a leader or what I aspire to do. Because I believe in my heart of hearts that we're all here to serve. In my own purview, we're here to serve God and serve each other. That's what I believe. And the way I serve is by helping people realize the best version of themselves. And I know that me demanding it of them, that's not doesn't get it. The idea is to inspire them to want to do that. And the thing is that. So the first is inspire people. The second part is that, you know, people need different things. You know, I have two, two daughters, Georgia and Ivy, 
and they are two completely different kids, right? The way I inspire Georgia is far different than the way I have, I, I need, what I need to do to inspire Ivy. And the same thing goes when it comes to organizations, not to, you know, meant to call, you know, workers or employees, children, but the, the analog is that they are different. They're, they're heterogeneous. They are driven and motivated by different things. So therefore inspiring different folks in our organization requires knowing them, requires a level of intimacy such that I can say like, you know, Mark needs this right now. Like he needs this right now. This is what's going to get him going. Because if I apply the same approach that I would do with Anya to you, you may go, that don't work on me, man. That ain't, that ain't going to do it. In fact, I can actually repel you by not knowing sort of what makes you, you tick. And the third, I would say is empathy. Things aren't the way they are. They are the way that we are, you know, and the way we see the world ultimately forms the way the world manifests. And empathy is the act of self, self-aware perspective taking. That I'm, I'm going to set aside my lens, my lenses to pick up your lenses, to see the world through your, through your eyes. And though I may not agree, right, I can at least understand. And by understanding that is how I'm able to help you realize the best version of yourself. So I think, you know, good leaders I've seen do that. Uh, or, or good leaders, I see demonstrate themselves as good leaders by inspiring people, by having uh, good in- intimacy, and also being able to practice empathy. That's great. Love those three things. I want to get your perspective. We call uh, a company's purpose, we, we combine purpose and mission together. Some people would like to have them up, uh, apart. And, and what we say, it's the reason you exist, the difference you make in the world. And it's for everybody. It's for yeah. employees and customers. And marketing-wise, it becomes really simple to, to remember that. You're not going like, well, what is this? And then That's it's right. you know, 80, 82 words you're trying, trying to remember. What do you think the, the, the power is, however you describe it, if you describe it as mission or, or purpose, what's the importance of having a very clear, simple, emotionally engaging purpose or mission statement? Well, belief or way of seeing the world acts as a North Star. It gets everyone aligned. Not only that, what we know of the literature is that beliefs commit us to action, right? And we know this of culture because of who I am. I believe this and therefore I, right? It's that therefore I, you know, I, I talk about this in, in, in the book, the rubric I use is I am a, we believe this, therefore I, right? I'm a Michigan Wolverine. We believe Ohio State sucks, so therefore, <laughs> I always throw slander at Ohio State every time I get a chance to, right? It's because of my belief that I behave accordingly, right? I'm a Collins. That's my identity. We believe family and church come first. Therefore, Sunday mornings, I'm in the church sanctuary, right? If not, I get a passive-aggressive call from my mother right, in the afternoon. But the idea there is that we do these things because of who we are and what we believe. So the notion of a company having, some, we'll call it a mission statement, some call it a purpose statement. Some call it belief. I refer to it as conviction. What I like about mm. conviction is that conviction, mm. it's an action word that like to have conviction means you are convicted. That is, you're willing to stand for something, right? And the notion here is that because of what we believe, we act accordingly. And those who find themselves in concert with us, they are a part of us. They are a part of our congregation, right? They are part of our our community, our tribe, our organization, our institution. They act in concert in an effort to promote social solidarity among themselves, right? Emil Durkheim refers to this as collective effervescence, that that we act in concert with people like us in an effort to promote social solidarity among among ourselves. So this, this North Star for us, this conviction, this belief, this purpose, this mission, not only unifies us, but it makes it very clear what people like us do. It informs how we as, as employees are supposed to act because of what we believe, it informs the products that we put in the world because of what we believe, it informs how we communicate it because of what we believe. And what I would argue and do argue that also informs who we target because of what we believe. That because we see the world a certain way, we should be targeting people who see the world the way we do. Because when we do that, people go, oh, that's my kind of company. I want to work for them because I see the world the way they do. 
oh, that's my kind of company. I want to buy their products because that brand signifies the way I see the world, right? We have this, this tendency, this natural urge to belong, to be a part of something. And belief and belonging becomes a tremendous gravitational pull that brings us in, keeps us seated, but also informs how we act while we're there. You know, you have this tremendous expertise in, in marketing and your background in marketing and making sure a message is simple, clear, compelling, can cut through all of the noise. Talk to us about what do leaders need to do to help make sure that that message is crystal clear for all of their employees or future employees to say, that is me. I see myself in that and I want to become a part of that. That's right. So the first thing to do is what do we believe? The, the belief the ideology, the, the conviction. Here's what we believe. Now, who sees the world the way we do? If it's a marketing perspective, it's the target audience, the target that we're going after. If it's an organization, it's like who are the people that are the most demonstrative representations of the belief? Those are our people. Those are people that we're going to support. Those are people that we want to lift up. Those are the people that we want to stay here because they embody everything this organization is all about. Not just because they're good performers, because there are good performers who may not be a good cultural fit, because they don't believe. So we find the believers, the people who are the most demonstrative representation of who we are. And then we go preach the gospel. And this is what you're getting to, the gospel. Like, how do you communicate a thing in such a way that, that activates the emotional part of, of our brains that really hit us at the center to go, oh, man, I just felt that. And like good advertising, we see that. You think about Nike, just do it. You go, oh, yeah, just, just oh, hit me right right at it. I read about this in the, in the book, like Sprite, obey your thirst. Oh yeah. Right, right in the center, like right down the middle. Like it just feels like the right thing to do. But we also see leaders do this as well. I have a dream or we choose to go to the moon. JFK. I mean, these, these, like, these are powerful gospels that you go, okay. All right. Sign me up for that. I mean, MLK you know, Martin Luther King, he wasn't the only great orator during the civil rights movement. He wasn't the, the, the only, you know, actor on the stage of action at the time, right? You had Malcolm X, Marcus Garvey, Mecca Evers, like really great orators and really powerful, compelling, charismatic figures. But when we think about the civil rights movement, we always think about Martin Luther King. Why is that? Why is he the face of civil rights? Because he embodies what civil rights is all about. But more importantly, is that he had a dream. And those who believe the dream go, that's the thing. That's the gospel, right? And, and not just in politicians or, 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 or activists. We see it also in, in, in companies. You know, Jeff Bezos would often say, you know, we're a day one company. We're day one company. But what does that mean? that every day is day one. Because the minute that you start to rest on your laurels, that's the minute that you get disrupted. So every day is day one here. That is, we're going to fight the dominant logic of how our company works or how our institution works or how the, the, the category works. We're going to continue to disrupt ourselves so that we're not disrupted by someone else. Every day is day one here. Steve Jobs you know, famously said, think different. That wasn't just an advertising campaign. That was the ethos of Apple, that Apple believed in challenging the status quo and bucking the conventional norm, right? And, 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 you know, and I used to work at Apple during the Steve Jobs days. And, you know, he, like, he was, he was the cheerleader for the place. You know, like he was preaching the gospel and everyone there, we knew if you were an Apple person, you go, oh yeah, you're one of us. Yeah, you get it. You're one of us. Not just because you were smart, but because you embodied what this place was all about. And it becomes a really powerful thing that not only unifies the population of people, the organization, if you will, the employees, but also it makes it very easy for us to recruit. There's this great video. I show this to my students here at Ross. You had some of those early software engineers for Apple. They were talking about the interview process at Apple. And so they'll bring someone in and, you know, they'll meet a lot of people and, you know, they'll do a tour the whole day. And at the end of the day, they will show them the Macintosh. This is in the early days of the Macintosh. They showed him the Macintosh. And he said, you know, 
when we show it to them, we look at how they react. And if their eyes light up and go, wow, this is, and they, they, they really kind of see the magic of it, we knew they were one of us. Wow. And this is what we look at. Are you one of us? Not because you come from the place I come from. Not to be mistaken with different perspectives about the world, but a shared point of view of the world. Nike, every human body is an athlete. Because every human body is an athlete, the only thing keeping us from realizing our best athletic self is us. So what does Nike tell the world? Just do it. How we do it, the manner in which we just do it, now that's open for interpretation. And actually having diverse thought around the table actually gets us to more heterogeneous expressions of just do it. But everyone here has to believe that every human body is an athlete. If not, you're in the wrong place. If you don't believe in bucking the status quo, if you are committed and, and, and feel safe and, 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 and feel motivated to maintain the status quo, this ain't the right place for you. And that's a really, really, really powerful instrument to help inspire people, motivate people, but also identify people as, we, as you grow the company. And I love the story of Martin Luther King on the mall decides to switch the speech. You At the know, very last I, minute, Mahalia Jackson yeah. goes, tell him about the dream, Martin. Yeah. And Martin goes, all right. Because he had given that speech several times before. Several right. times before. And Mahalia heard him give the speech in Detroit, I think. Maybe I'm remember that I'm from Detroit. And he goes, all right, cool. And I say to myself, like, everybody needs a Mahalia in their life. Everybody needs someone right. to go, Marcus, tell him about the thing. You know the thing. And you go, all right, right. I can do this. Right. Yeah. I mean, leaders, I think so much. We, uh, when we talk to leaders, we sort of categorize, Hey, there's leadership where you're, you know, tapping into your culture and you're driving the culture and you're responsible for the culture. And it's about the mission and, and the, and the values and bringing that all to life. And then there's management where it's like, Hey, what are the tasks and the logistics and, and everything? And, and I believe that companies need, need both. You can't yeah. have one without the other. But, you know, to, to hear, you know, a lot of times I'll put a slide up and I'll, I'll say, hey, Martin Luther King didn't say, I have a plan. And then everyone I got, everyone's like, oh, wow, we got a plan. And, and hey, 10,000 of you go down here and, and we got a, but like, the, like to not do that must have been so hard. That's right. That's right. But when, but when he took us to the dream, you know, that mentalizing region we have in our brain, he took us all right there. Yeah. And it was so, so, so powerful. And, you know, you talked about Steve Jobs, you know, the first go around at, at Apple, you know, he was so directive and everything. And, and our, our head of technology used to work there. And he said it was like, you did it the Steve Jobs way. Yeah. And I think when he came in and then when he left, you could see they really struggled because he was such a driving force in it. And he hadn't really, when he came back, you could see he was a different leader about pushing some decision-making down and knowing that for Apple to really go on that he wasn't always going to be here. And, yeah. and so, so just, a, just a really, really powerful, powerful set of examples. Indeed, indeed. I mean, I think that when we think about everything in our life, it becomes kind of crystal clear, especially think about business, right? So, so, you know, business, understanding these ideas of culture, of humanity, of, of like all the things that really actually drives us to take action. The oldest institutions in the world have already known this, religion government, military, they've always understood the power of culture. They've always understood the power of providing vision, of providing a North Star that's going to guide us. They've always understood the power of belief, you know, and businesses, we're like babies when it comes to this world relative to these three older institutions. And, and the idea is that like, if you don't fit into sort of the belief in the the ideologies of the institution, you got to go, right? If, you're, if you don't follow the sort of what's expected of you in the congregation, the, in a religious sense, you get excommunicated, right? If you don't follow what's expected of you based on the culture and in, 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 in the armed services, you know, you get discharged, right? If you don't follow in the world of politics, you get voted out. Like all these things have, have always sort of, sort of been the way things operate. I mean, government, it, we find ourselves, you know, in the crosshairs of, of some pretty peculiar moments in the country because the cultural norms of government are being challenged. And we go, whoa, 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 what are you doing? Whoa, whoa, 
whoa, whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> and that's how powerful culture is because we rely on it so much as a governing operating system that any change to it, any massive change, because culture is always changing, but any massive change too fast could feel, uh, could feel like the, the rugs can pull it up under you. Earlier on, you talked about empathy. You know, when I, when I talk to leaders about empathy, I mean, they look like the, their eyes go like <laughs> empathy. Is it something, you know, was I born with it? And, and I'm not born with that. And I don't, I don't have that. Talk about, talk about empathy and talk about how leaders can operationalize that quote unquote. Yeah. If we think about how, how can they bring that to life in themselves yeah. to have the impact that they can have on their culture and their people? Yeah. Empathy is a tough one. Again, we talk about empathy all the time in our normal discourse, but not the greatest Rosetta Stone for it. And the, 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 the construct I like to use comes from Michael Ventura. And Michael talks about culture as empathy, as self-aware perspective taking. And like, I like that so much because A, it means that it's us doing it. It's you, self, doing it. And it's the perspective of someone else. And, and that's really powerful, right? Because if I think that a cow is leather, but you think that it, it is a deity, then we treat cows differently. And I might go like, Mark, what you doing with this cow? It's just leather. And you go, no, 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 Mark, it's, it's a deity. And if I don't understand that you see it that way, then we are right. kind of at odds, right? And, and it's this level of practice of taking on the perspective of other people that help us connect. That even if I don't agree, I can see how you got there. And the thing about empathy is that empathy comes in different, different uh, sizes, shapes, forms. You know, there is a, a, a somantic empathy, that kind of an automatic empathy that kind of happens without us sort of thinking about it, doing anything, unless you're a sociopath, of course. But like, if you slam your hand in the door, I go, ooh, you okay? Woo, like that hurt. You all right? Woo, you good? I felt that with you, right? right. That somantic empathy is sort of automatic feeling with someone. And then there's, there, there's more of an affective empathy. Right. And, and we think about this sort of like the golden rule, do unto others you want done unto you, right? Like, oh, if you're having a bad day, I'm going to reach out to you because that's what I want someone to do for me, right? We go, I'm a good friend if I do that. That's great. But then this idea of cognitive empathy is sort of one step higher. And cognitive empathy is really about do unto others as they want done unto them. And it's different than the golden rule. It's different. It's, it's like, well, I may want someone to call me when I'm having a bad day, so I call my friends. But you may be a kind of person that go, I want no one to call me. I want to be by myself. And to know that about you is I have to know you. I have to know how you see the world. Even though I may want it one way, I have to set aside my biases. I set aside my own ethnocentrisms to see the world through your lens and then act accordingly. And that's really, really powerful. You know, I, I have two daughters, Georgia and Ivy. Hey, and how, how old are they? Ivy is four and Georgia is nine. Oh, and beautiful. I remember like as Georgia was, you know, coming out of toddlerhood, Ivy's not there yet, toddlerhood with Georgia, I would never tell her, how would you feel if I did that to you? Well, she'd hurt my feelings because she hurt my feelings a lot. But I never say, how would you feel if I did that to you? Because Georgia may respond to like, I, I, it would be all right. I wouldn't even care. And it would completely kind of null and void the point that I'm making. Instead, I said to her, how do you think you made daddy feel? Like I'm trying to, get her to develop a muscle where she sets aside her own biases to see the world through my lenses. When I remember feeling this during, I was finishing my, my, my dissertation for my doctorate. My mother's also a, an academic. And I remember talking to her. She's like, how's it going? How, how's the research going? I was like, oh, it's killing me. Good grief. I'm spending hours and hours in, in Google Scholar trying to find you know, these articles that are relevant. And she was like, Google Scholar? Shoot, when I was doing my doctor, I was using microfiche. And I was like, wow, I'm not a competition. You know, and, and in that moment, I was like, all right, well, I'm going to get going. I'll talk to you later. And the, 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 when I realized that in that moment, that could have been an opportunity for her and I to connect, that she could have seen my pain and realized what that is. But instead, she saw that as like, oh, I see what you're going through, but I actually had it harder than you. So that's not even that, that, that big of a deal. And it, it, speaks, to, it speaks to this notion this adage that we typically use, we talk about empathy, walk a mile in someone's shoes. And while that's a, it's well intended, good, good spirited, 
it's not enough because my mom walked a mile in my shoes. She, she did her doctorate, right? She's Dr. Jeanette Collins. She did her doctorate, right? But it's not enough to walk a mile in someone's shoes. You have to see the world through their perspective. And she did not. Like she walked a mile in my shoes and go way easier than it was when she did it. But if she had saw it through my perspective, she would have go, oh man, that must be difficult. Whew. I, I'm, I'm, you know, hang in there. You know, I, you know, trust me, it was hard for me too. You could do that. You know what I mean? Like she would have, she would have set aside her own biases and saw the world through my lenses. And in that moment, we would have connected. And that that's really what empathy mm. does. It helps us to connect by seeing ourselves in other people and seeing them in us. And it's through that level of connection that we're able to, you know, fortify humanity. What is it that, is there anything like simple you think that a leader can do to be able to, to, to bring out, bring out that empathy? Is it yep. just as simple as what you just said? Like, Hey, I, I, I'm seeing it from, you know, restate it to that. Hey, I, I understand you're, you're having a challenge right now. And I, I see your perspective. What, what is it? Cause I, you're, you're, you're great at communicating. Oh, like, how, how do, well, no, all the marketing stuff, you know, we talk about simple, clear messages with the world being so disruptive right now and so much, like, how do we get messages to cut through yeah. to our employees and, and, and really make that real connection? So I think you got to ask why three times you got to ask why. So when we observe something or we hear something, we ask ourselves, okay, why is this happening? For instance, you know, I hear this all the time in, in marketing, you know, we say, um, Gen Z does X, Y, and Z because blah, blah, blah. Right. And we put them in some kind of box. And, and what we see is we see them say, you know, Gen Z's, they're saying, you know, they don't want to work, you know, five days a week inside of an office. And then what do we, we label to them? They're lazy. They're this, they're that they're self-entitled. They're all these things. We lay these labels to them. And what I would argue is that the first thing you should do is ask why, why don't they? And the first thing that happens is that we respond with our bias. We go, oh, because they're this, throw some label on them. And then we should ask ourselves, well, why is that? Either why are they that or why do we think that? And the latter is more powerful. Why do I think that? Well, I think that because I know two Gen Zs who do X, Y, and Z. Well, why do they do that? And as you start to ask yourself why more than once, you start to scrape to the bottom of your biases. You go, oh, that's just me. Oh, maybe that's just, maybe, maybe I need to stop and see the world through someone else's lenses, right? That, that exercise of asking why helps you do self-inventory that allows you to identify the biases you have. And that's the first start. These are the biases that I have. I'm coming to this with this certain set of biases. Now, I need to observe the world with those biases set aside now that they've been identified. Because once you identify them, it's easier to sort of get to some truth. Yeah, it's a piece of gold right there. That's really, really, really good. I mean, you know, I think about it like this way. Like if I'm in a conversation with my wife, particularly like in a disagreement, an argument with my wife, you know, I may start- That saying, never, that never happens, right? Never happens. <laughs> but like, I can imagine like starting a conversation like, Look, I know I had a long day and I know I may be tired, but, and then I started talking and I go, oh, Marcus, like, this is, you're kind of tripping right now. You know what I mean? Like, it's like when, right. when, when I, when I qualify a thing, it creates some context for me to sort of analyze or assess, take inventory of what I'm saying. I go, oh man, yeah, maybe, maybe. And then I almost talk myself out of the argument that I was making by the end of it. Right. I, I add so many, so, so, so many qualifiers along the way that I go, oh, this caveat means this. And I go, you know what? All right. You know, here's really what the challenge is. I'm just tired or I just kind of hurt as opposed to you did something wrong, which typically how arguments begin is like, I'm just kind of hurt by this. And here's why I was hurt. And when I do that, when I make myself vulnerable in that way, it allows my wife to connect with me. I think the same thing goes when it comes to employees, right? We go, Gen Z, they never want to blah, blah, blah. They go, blah, 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 blah. They're always, they're always that. And they go, well, maybe, what is it about me? Like, why do, why do I have that point of view? Maybe it's because my parents worked in the same place for 40, 50 years and they, you know, nine to five. 
And I feel like I had to do that even though I didn't want to do that. And I feel like I was just paying my dues. But like, what if that doesn't have to be the case? Like, what if that, what if there's a better way than this? What if, what if the, you know, the generation after me doesn't have to like earn their stripes? Like, what if? And these things, like once we start to kind of unpack that, I think we get to something that's far more nourishing and, and far more uh, fruitful. I love that. And I'd, I'd love to double click on on something that you talked about, which is, you know, Gen Z. And when we look at the next five years, where it's going to really flip, where baby boomers are out, you know, Gen X and Gen Y are supposed to be about the same percentage, but there's going to be a lot more Gen Z in. If you're leading a company right now, how is that going to impact your culture, the, the different generational workforces as it makes this major shift? What's your yep. perspective on that? So I say, if you set aside the, generational, the generationalism just for a moment and think about this just as legacy, just as uh, future casting, right? Succession planning. The job of the leader, the job of the CEO is to preach the gospel. That's your job, right? I heard it referred to as you, you are the chief visionary officer. Like that's your job to sort of say, here's the North Star. Here's where we're going. Here's how we're going to get there. And you should be preaching the gospel all up and down the halls. When we see, when we, we think about a, a startup, it's three folks sitting around a table and they're all there. Why? Because they believe. They're not making any money. In fact, they're probably losing money. But they're there because they believe in the thing. And the idea is that their belief drives them in everything that they do. And the more successful they become, the more they bring people to the table. And in those early days, they gatekeep. They're doing some gatekeeping to make sure that whoever comes in here, they're believers. But then when the company starts to scale, we go, Whoa, we need people in here so we can actually make good on the fiduciary responsibility that we have on the production or whatever the case may be. So they started hiring people who may not believe. They're just there because they have a great resume, because they come from a great school, or they worked at our, with our competitors. And those people show up not because they believe in the company, but they, they show up because it's going to look good on my resume or they pay good money or whatever the case may be. And then as a result, you have a big company with a great population, those people who are there transactionally not because they believe and getting them to operate within the culture that you originally started and want to, to establish for the organization becomes terribly difficult because they're not all believers, right? So the idea then of the leader is that every time a new person comes into the building, they believe they see the world. They know what we, they know what we believe they're here. They're being indoctrinated, interpolated into what it means to be a part of this tribe, this community, this organization, this congregation. And as that person, you know, grows up, grows older, you know, decides to sort of step away from the company, whoever they knight next, they tap next. Now it's that person's job to preach the gospel and ensure that everyone coming in here is a believer. If they're not, no matter how talented they are, they are not a good fit for this organization. They should not be there. So generationalism aside, that's just how succession planning should go. And that's the role of the leader as leadership changes. Now, when we put on there the moniker of Gen Z, I feel like that doesn't change at all, actually, because Gen Z isn't real. It's not a real thing, right? It's a construction, something that we make up, right? Just like Gen X isn't real, just like boomers aren't real, just these things are not real. They are labels that we put on a group of people who were born in a 20-year period. You mean to tell me that everyone between the age of 45 and 65 are the same? That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. But that's what we do. Why do we do that? Because it's easy. We put people in boxes, not because it's real, but because it's easy. Even the Pew Research uh, Group have stopped using generationalism as a way to look at uh, consumer behavior or human behavior because they're not they are not predictive of what we do and, and we don't look in the mirror and say i am a millennial therefore i no not at all right and it's because that because these things aren't aren't representative of how we self-identify and therefore they aren't representative of what we like we are likely to do they're not real Love that. Yeah. When I talk with leaders, they talk about Gen Y and Gen Z and they're doing all this. 
And I always tell them, if you, if you can connect them to the mission and show them how what they do connects to making a difference in the world, that, that those, those generations, they bring the most energy and they're the most committed. That's right. The most committed. That's right. The problem is, problem is we're talking like a little bit too many people have the Jack Welch thing. I, 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 I they're, they're getting paid money. You know, what else do you want from me? And That's it's, right. it's like, Hey, you need to be able to shift to be able to connect with them on an emotional level. And you, you do that, your company's going to fly. There's this great scene in the show, Mad Men. It's like one of my favorite scenes in television where a young copywriter, Peggy Olson's talking to Don Draper, who's the, the creative director, leader in the organization. He's the star of the show. And she's like, you know, I gave you all my ideas and you never said thank you. You never showed any appreciation. And he said, that's what the money is for. And it's like, what? Like, really? Like, is that what we believe? That, I mean, like, like, that, like that is the transactional relationship that we think of work. That I give you money, you give me your brilliance, you give me your time, you give me your effort, you give me your attention. And in some cases, you give me lo your loyalty. It is for sale, right? And you go, that, and if that be the case, then the minute I check out of here at five o'clock, I don't want to hear nothing from you. I don't want you, don't, don't tell me that we're a family. Don't tell me that we're a team. No, 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 no. This is transactional work. And I'm going to give you that for this fraction of time. And then I'm out of here, which makes a really good argument where you say, well, okay, well, we need more people back in the office. And you go, well, I actually do my job better at home. So why do I need to be there? If this is a transactional based thing. Then you go, well, no, you got a part of the culture then. It's like, why do I need to be a part of the culture? I'm, you're just paying me to, you know, to make, to make a, a quarter panels. What are we doing here? You're just paying me to write a deck. You're just paying me to write an article. You're just paying me to, to do a thing. You cannot have both. You can't have the social dynamics and the marketplace dynamics, right? Without adhering to the cultural characteristics of both. Love that. Love that. When you think about your leadership style, how would you describe it? I like to think of myself, I, I think of, I call it like the Phil Jackson years that, that I'm in right now that I used to be a player coach and now I'm, I'm primarily a coach. And, and the notion here is that you know, I feel like that what, I've, what I've experienced has been eye-opening and has created a perspective that I've developed that I think can help people tremendously. And I spend my time as an educator, as a speaker, as an author, in, in boardrooms, helping people see the world differently. And I know that that's done best when you can inspire them to see the world differently. So I spend my, my, my days leading teams, organizations, students by providing them a, a, a different worldview, showing them a perspective they haven't before. And the, the, the hope, the idea of doing that is to coach them how to get there. That's great. As we finish up here today, one thing that I always ask every guest is, you know, for someone listening right now, from your perspective, what's one thing that they could do to surface the leader inside of themselves? Mm. One thing you could do to surface the leader inside of yourself, I think it starts with taking the inventory of yourself. And that's an introspective activity to say to yourself, okay, who's the leader I want to be? Where am I strongest there? And where am I anemic? And doing that practice sets up some, some rubric by which we can evaluate ourselves so that we can look at each day and say, did I do that well? Eh, this is where I fell short. Without some construct, a construct to help us guide what it means to be the leader that we want to be, it, it's a haphazard way of measuring if we're living up to that. But if we start with saying, here's a leader that I want to be, here's what that means. We can now ask ourselves, am I living up to that every day when we're taking appraisal of ourselves? And even when we're in a situation, we go, how do I respond to this? We can say, all right, 
here's the leader that I want to be. Here's what this requires of me. But if we don't have that, then then we are, to your James Clear point, we are slaves to our habits. Wow, that's great. Marcus, that was a fantastic conversation. You know, thank you so much. I mean, if I were to really just sum this up, there's three words that, that start with C that come to mind uh, when I sum up the conversation. Your, your curious mind, a mind of curiosity that started with, you know, material science and then just kept going through all these different beautiful avenues of music and advertising and, and where you are right now. And, and your, your belief, you know, you even said earlier on, like the material science was this, this, always this connection. There's this chain of connection. So the second word is that connections are so important for us and your ability to, to make sure it's just not a, a connection that's based on logic. It's a connection that's based on emotion. Mm. And how do you have this multi-mode way to, to connect with others? And then, and then the final thing is, is just your, your willingness as a leader and as a human being to continue to think about yourself and continuing to improve, like continuing mm. to continue to improve. I think it's been a fantastic conversation. I have, I have learned a lot. You filled my cup today and you're certainly going to fill the cups of, of our listeners here. So Marcus, thank you so much uh, for being on the Surfacing Leaders podcast. I'm so grateful. Thank you for having me. Thanks for joining Mark today. And remember, new episodes of Surfacing Leaders will be available every other week where you can become inspired, gain confidence, and learn leadership right where you are. Until next time, make it a great day.